Thank you for listening to the podcast of Bible Baptist Church. Please visit our website at www.southbaybbc.org for more information. Last week, we took a look at the first couple of verses of this chapter, and we took a look at the verses regarding uh, this list of sins. We know that perilous times are coming, and Paul says to Timothy, you know that perilous times will be here when you see all of these things. And so he lists a number of them in verses 2, 3, and 4. He talks about lovers of their own selves, covetous, unthankful, disobedient to parents, unholy, incontinent, all of these things. And we took a look at those things last week. But it's verse number five that really makes this idea of perilous times so perilous. What is it about these sins that necessarily makes it so perilous? What's so different about the last days from all of the other days? And verse number five tells us, it says, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. Here is a group of people who claim to be Christians. Here's a group that claims to be spiritual. Here's a group that claims to have a connection with God, but they have no power. There is no evidence that God is working there. And that's what makes the last time so dangerous because it's not just that the sins are here. Unthankfulness has been around forever since the first sin. Unthankfulness has been around. And unholiness, all of these things, disobedient to parents. I mean, you just start in the book of Genesis. Once you see Adam and Eve committing sin, then you see all those sins that go through in the book of Genesis. I mean, that's, that's what this looked like. So why is that day different from the last days? Well, verse number five makes it clear. What's so different is not just that the sins are here, but that the sins are here in the church. That's what makes the last days so perilous. That's what makes these sins so dangerous, because fire in a fireplace is okay. But if you've got fire in your couch, you have a problem, right? You would expect sin to be in a fireplace. You're not expecting sin to be in your couch. If, or you're, you're not expecting fire to be in your fireplace. That's what you're expecting. And you're not expecting fire to be in your couch. That's when you're like, whoa, we got a problem. This is dangerous. And that's what happens in the last days. Sin is not just in the world. It is within the church. And so we're going to take a look at what we might call a powerless religion or a crippled church. And to ask the question... How do you know if you're a part of this? We've already seen some indications, but I want to dig a little bit deeper because uh, Paul begins to describe this church in a little bit more detail. Not just to describe the sins in verses 2, 3, and 4, but he's really going to get into it. So I want to see a couple of characteristic traits of this weak church, or a crippled church as I'm going to call it. So first of all, we see the charm of the crippled church. Verse number 6. For of this sort are they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women laden with sins, led away with diverse lusts, ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. So, in our minds, we should not expect people to want to join a powerless religion. Right? That doesn't make sense. Alright? If somebody came up to you and it was evangelizing you, trying to, you know, get you to join their religion, and they said, I want you to come to this religion that I'm a part of. We're weak. We're powerless. We don't know what we're doing, but we want you to join us. You'll be like, 
uh, no thank you, all right? Why would I want to join that? And yet you find that people join powerless religions all the time, all over the place. And not just for false religions, but those that would claim the name of Christ. Those that would claim the name of Christ can be a part of a religious system, if you will, that's not working. And we'll get into a little bit more detail in that regard of what, what exactly does that mean. It doesn't make sense. So how does it happen? Well, Paul gives us a few indications of how it happens. First of all, you have some teachers coming in that are sneaky. In verse number six, for of this sort are they which creep into houses. All right. So the tactic here is one that is subtle. They're trying to sneak in into some opening, into some weak point. And notice what it says. They are they which creep into, and the next word is the word houses. They're not just people who creep into the church, but they creep into houses. That gives us an indication of how does this begin and where does Satan attack? Satan's tactic has been from the very beginning to attack the home. He wants to attack the home. He wants to take down the home. He wants to pull apart the home. He wants to destroy the home. He wants husbands to have problems with their wives. He wants wives to have problems with their husbands. He wants the children to be disobedient to the parents. He wants the parents to express in anger and frustration and, and, and have all of these sorts of things evident in the home so that he might break apart the home. That's what Satan wants to do. And so we must, as Christians, be very careful what we allow into our homes. We have to be careful what we allow in our homes. What you talk about at home matters. How you talk about things matters. How you talk about the Bible at home matters. How you talk about the church, how you talk about other Christians, the things that you talk about and the things that you don't talk about matter in your home. You've got to be very careful because Satan is going to try to attack your home. He's going to try to attack those very foundational relationships because God ordained the home. God ordained the marriage, and God ordained parents and children, and Satan is going to try to do his best to take it apart. And I've mentioned this before. Now, my kids are very young, so it's little concern right now, but down the road, I've mentioned this before. You know, I, I don't know if we'll ever get into our quote-unquote dream house, but if we ever do get into our dream house, my dream house is a, is, a, is a house where the bedrooms are so small that the only things that they can do are sleep and get dressed. That's it, all right? I don't want these big, fancy, you know, elaborate setups where they can have desks and TVs and computers and all of that stuff. No, 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 all right? I want my kids, if you're going to use something, you use it in the common living space, all right? You do it in the living room, and you do it where it's clearly obvious everybody could see what you're doing. You know why? Because I know Satan's going to try to attack my children. I know that, and I know that Satan's going to try to attack my marriage. And so we've got to be very careful. So I've thought about this, you know, I can't take, you know, uh, technology out of the hands of my kids forever because one day they're going to be using it. They will be using it. One day they're going to have their own smartphones. One day they're going to have their own laptops. One day they're going to have their own homes. 
and now they are independent and they are out of my, they're, they're out of my control, right? I have let them go. They have now been independent. I could try to help them, try to be influential. So I've, but I, while they're in my home, I've got to make sure I teach and train them. All right, this is why you can't use your smartphone in your room. This is why. Because Satan has a lot of access to your mind through that device. And we want to be very careful. I think that's so prudent to just think about some of these things, not just to turn on the TV and let the TV go on. You know, you got to know, what are your kids watching? What are they seeing? What are they hearing? What are they listening to? Give them counsel and advice. All right, here, this is a show that you're not allowed to watch. And here's why. All right, they're using these words. They're talking about certain things that, that are not biblical, and I don't want you to learn those things, and so we avoid them. We don't listen to these things, all of those kinds of things. So we've got to be careful, and it's not just for the kids. It's for those of us that are adults. We've got some teenagers in here too, but for adults as well, we've got to be careful of what we learn online. I know there's a big temptation of, you know what, there's so much access to information out there, I can just look it up. And I can just watch whatever person is teaching online. And sometimes people come to me, sometimes people from this church, and sometimes people just that I meet or whatever, talk to me about some people that they're listening to or people that they're hearing from. And I think, oh, okay, all right, let me ask you a little bit, dig a little bit deeper there, because I don't know if you know what you're getting into. I don't know if you know what you're really getting and learning and growing and absorbing because, you know, I had some people talk about, oh, you know, I listened to this guy online. I said, did you know that this person doesn't believe in the inerrancy of the Bible? He believes that there are faults in the Bible, that you can't trust the Bible, that there are mistakes in the Bible. Did you know that? Well, they didn't know that. Well, it just so happened that I'd heard about this individual and I looked up a video. In the first five minutes, he was just talking about it. And he just said, you know, we know that the Bible has all of these mistakes and blah, blah, blah. And then he kind of moved on. And I was like, oh, okay, all right. We, we need to stop right here because we need to talk about that kind of thing. And let me encourage you to be very careful with that. So there's a couple of tips that I want to give you that at least in this regard can help you. Number one, you, as a Christian, you study your Bible with God, okay? You get alone with God and his word, and you say, God, I want to learn your word, teach me. Did you know that the Holy Spirit will teach you the word of God? Did you know that the Holy Spirit says, I want to teach you the word of God if you will let me. Get along with the word of God. You can get some help from other places. And again, I, I always very careful about that, but get along with God. You can learn the Bible just by reading the Bible. Did you know that? Did you know that a long time ago, you know, when the Bible was first written, Paul's writing these letters, he didn't send a commentary along with it. <laughs> he just gave the word of God and said, here, read it and learn <laughs> and grow. <laughs> That's it. That's all that they needed. And that was sufficient for them. So let me encourage you. You study the Bible. You want to study the Bible and learn? That's great. That's wonderful. Study the Bible. Don't just study what somebody else says about the Bible. Study the Bible, okay? The other thing is, go to your local church and ask questions. Amen? You want to learn the Bible? Go to your local church and ask questions. Now, if you watch somebody online, come and ask a question. You know, I heard this online, and just to be honest, I never heard this before. It sounds really good, but I just want to make sure. 
what does the Bible say about this? That's a great way to have a good spiritual conversation, say, in a life connection class. That's one of the advantages of a life connection class is we don't always have that opportunity. Like in the service here today, we probably won't really get into some of those things. I might hear about something and I'll address it uh, on a Sunday morning or Sunday night, you know, in the weeks to follow. But that's a great place for your life connection class where you can get into the class and say, you know what, I'm listening to this individual and this person is teaching X, Y, and Z, but you guys never talk about it here at Bible Baptist Church. Is it because uh, you, know, you don't believe it or am I, am I wrong here or you guys call it something different? That's a great way to learn the Bible and not get caught up in some other potentially dangerous uh, religion or philosophy or group of individuals. And that's very important because Satan also is going to try to bypass your spiritual authority and get to you directly. All right, that's God's plan. God's plan is to try to cut out authority. You can see it in the philosophy of the world. All right, parents are actually a hindrance to the philosophy of the world because parents are ordained of God, designed not every parent is perfect, but designed in order to protect the child from the dangers of the world, right? Train them up, raise them up, give them physical nurture, give them emotional nurture, give them spiritual nurture so that they might grow up to be strong. The world says, all right, we got to get rid of this authority so that we can get to them directly. That's their philosophy. You can see it in the public schools. You can see it all over the place. And so you have an authority here in your local church designed to help and to protect you. So that is something that is very important because in verse number six, he begins to describe how they begin to attack those that are a little bit weaker, lead captive silly women laden with sins, led away with diverse lusts. So here we have this word, the word silly women is actually one word and it literally just means little woman or little women here. And it, it kind of carries this idea of those that are a little bit weaker, those that are a little bit immature. The point is that in that day and age, societally, women were of a lower status, like they couldn't own property and things like that. There's distinct disadvantages in this day and age, and Satan would go after them. They would attack those that were weaker in order to capture them so that they might grow their group. And it happens today as well. It's not always women, it's children, it's men, it's groups of people all over the place. You see this happening. And what it says there in the, at the end is, is that they are laden with sins. It reminds me of the Pharisees laying heavy burdens on the people. And it lays heavy burdens because they said, you want to be better, you got to do all of these things. Now, as Christians, we know that is not how we obtain holiness. Holiness is not obtained by doing more, right? Holiness comes from the Lord. But all of this, I believe, is predicated on this idea in verse number seven. Ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. There's a desire to learn, and I, I'm, I'm naturally curious. I like to learn. If I don't know what something is, I wanna read about it, I wanna hear about it, I wanna know more about it. That, that's, that's my nature, and some of you might be that way as well. But what he says here in verse number seven is that there's a group of individuals in this powerless church that keep learning but never come to the knowledge of the truth. And the leaders of this group are displaying some sort of knowledge but not really getting to the truth. And the spirit of it is intellectualism. 
All right? The spirit is, I'm smart, I'm the expert, you listen to me. All right? That's the spirit. Now, there are great places where you should trust experts, right? You should trust the expert, right? If you're going to try to learn how to fly an airplane, it would be good for you to learn from somebody who knows how to fly an airplane, right? That just makes sense. You want to learn how to be a doctor. You want to learn how to be a lawyer. All of those things. That's great and that's wonderful. But there is a danger in this guy's smarter than me, so he must know so much more than me, therefore I must listen to everything that he says. Paul made it very clear when he was preaching to the church at Corinth that he, he made it clear that he would not stand in the wisdom of men. He stood in the wisdom of God because he knew there is power in the word of God more than there is in the wisdom of men. Paul warns about something called science falsely so-called. And we need to get something very fundamentally true, all right? We can deal with truth. We can deal with, in terms of what we can observe and all of those kinds of things. And, and we can see that the Bible matches with scientific discovery. And what you'll find is that a lot of these people who are so-called scientists begin with a premise that is opposed to God and then pull out the evidence that supports their claim and not really look at the entire magnitude of everything. So there's a, a number of years ago, there was an example of uh, this, uh, this uh, archaeologist, or I think that's what they're called. Uh, she was looking up, uh, the, she found a Tyrannosaurus Rex bone, this skeleton, I think it was in Montana. And uh, they were trying to, you know, get it and pull it out and everything. And uh, they had this, uh, one of the bones, I think it was one of the leg bones, they were trying to pull it out, it broke. And in the middle of the bone, they saw soft tissue, okay? Just like you would expect, right? So the living being, you break it open, there will be some soft tissue, some marrow or something in there. Now, you have to remember, according to evolution, T-Rexes have not been around for tens of millions of years. You would not expect to find that. And so there was a big contention, and she was being attacked for falsifying this finding. This lady's not even a Christian, and she's like, I, I just found it, it broke, and I'm showing you what it is. And you see in moments like that a, a predisposition against God and really against the evidence and trying to bury some of those kinds of things. And so we need to be very careful because ultimately we know where the truth lies. It lies in the word of God. And ultimately for us to get to where we need to be at some point, you need to trust God in faith. There has to be an aspect of faith of your Christian life. If you live your Christian life based only on what you can see, you are not living the Christian life. You are living the fleshly life. You are living the carnal life. We have to live based on not what we can see, but also what we cannot see. Because that's how you got saved. You got saved by faith. Right? Somebody could ask you, do you know that there's a heaven? Now, we know that there is in the Bible, but have you seen it? Can you prove it? Can you prove that there's a heaven? Can you prove that there's a hell? Can you prove that after everybody dies that they stand before God in judgment? We can't prove 
any of those things. And yet we believe all of those things. Amen? Why? Because it's in the Word of God. So, it's easy to fall into a weak religion because it's so charming. It sounds intellectual. Sometimes people get captivated by these things. And it gets into the home and then it kind of builds from there. The second thing that I want to see is the character of the crippled church. In verse number 8, we see these two names, Janus and Jambres. We don't know who they are. They're not listed in the Old Testament, so we don't know exactly who they are. The names, just so you're aware, means he who seduces and he who makes rebellion. So whether these were real people or just names given symbolically to groups of people that were resistant, and um, withstood Moses, we're not really sure, but the point is that they resisted the truth. These two individuals resisted the truth. They did not follow or obey the truth of God's word. Another classic example of somebody who is just like this are the Pharisees. Here's a group of people that were resistant to Jesus. Jesus is the truth, right? I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Here's a group. So let's take a look. We don't know who Janice and Jambres are, but we know who the Pharisees are. All right? So what is somebody who is resistant to the truth? Well, here's a couple traits. Number one, they obey part of the Bible, but not all of it. Luke chapter 11, verse 42. But woe unto you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and all manner of herbs and Passover judgment and the love of God. These ought ye to have done and not to leave the other undone. See, here's a trait of a Pharisee who resists the truth, who is part of a weak, powerless religion. What do they do? They pick and choose. They obey parts of the Bible, but not all of it. Another trait, they do things for the wrong motives. Matthew chapter 23, verse number 5. But all their works they do for to be seen of men. They make broad their phylacteries and enlarge the borders of their garments. Right? What is their motivation? Their motivation is to be seen of men, to be lifted up, to have honor and to respect among the people. Another character trait, they say one thing, but then they do something else. Matthew chapter 23, verse 15, woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you can pass sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he is made, you make him twofold more the child of hell than yourselves. He says, you guys are hypocrites. You guys do this, but then you say that, and you do this, and you, you say the other thing. Lastly, we see that they are unrepentant when confronted with the truth. Matthew chapter 3, verse 7, But when he saw many of the Pharisees, this is John the Baptist, he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bring forth fruit, meat for repentance. So here is John the Baptist recognizing, here's a group of Pharisees coming, and they're, they're, they want to be part of this movement that's happening. And they're kind of trying to slip in. But John the Baptist sees them and he says, no, 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 you guys, what are you guys doing here? You guys bring forth fruit, meat for repentance. You're repentant of your sins? Prove it, all right? If you really change your minds and your lives, you should live differently. You say that you're repentant, but you come here and you live exactly the same way, which leads to a rottenness of their thinking. It says, men of corrupt minds. These men of corrupt minds. And this word for corrupt minds, interestingly, happens in only one other place in the Bible. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse number 10. I think we have the verses. But chiefly them that walk after the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise government. Presumptuous are they, self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignities, whereas angels, which are greater in power and might, bring not 
not railing accusation against them before the Lord. But these, as natural brute beasts made to be taken and destroyed, speak evil of the things that they understand not and shall utterly perish in their own corruption. So this word for corrupt minds deals with the resistance and rebellion against authority. All right. So a rotten thinking, according to this verse, means a rebellion against authority, which matches exactly. Janus and Jambres withstood Moses. Moses was the authority that was there. And so we have authority in our lives in order to help us. I know that it's kind of, you know, uh, uh, you know a trend to be called a rebel, you know, oh, I'm a rebel. I'm rebelling against the system. I'm rebelling against whatever. I'm going to do what I want to do. And, and it seems cool. It seems popular, but it's ungodly. Okay, that's ungodly. All right, you have authority in your life for a good reason. All right, all the parents should say authority is good. Amen. All right, you are the authority. You want your kids to listen to the authority. That's good. Now, we're not saying all of your authorities are perfect. Of course we're not. Paul knew very well that the governmental authority was far from perfect. But how's your spirit? That's what's important. And the spirit of those in a weak religion says, get rid of authority. No matter If the authority disagrees with you, you get rid of it and you do what you want to do. You're your own authority. That's the idea of the devil. That is what Satan wants to do. And it leads to an ultimate reprobation of their trust, of their faith. They are reprobate, reprobate concerning the faith. Concerning the faith. The word reprobate means they have been tested and they have been proven to be false. That's the idea. Titus chapter 1, verse number 16. They profess that they know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable and disobedient, and unto every good work reprobate. Hebrews chapter 6, verse number 8. But that which beareth thorns and briars is rejected, and is nigh unto cursing, whose end is to be burnt. The word reprobate has this idea of you test certain metals in order to see their purity, and whatever doesn't pass the test, you discard them. That's the idea of the word reprobate. And that's the idea that we should have towards those teachers that promote these things. Thirdly, and lastly, what I want to take a look at, so we took a look, first of all, at the charm. It can seem so appealing and attractive to join a movement or a religion or even a church that really lacks power. And then we began to see, here's the character trait of some of these churches or some of these individuals, at least, which leads us, lastly, to the confusion of the crippled church. Verse number nine, but they shall proceed no further for their folly shall be made manifest unto all men as theirs also was. So this weak, powerless, crippled church is in folly and it means that they lack in understanding. I want to take your attention to Luke chapter 24, verse number 45. Here are some individuals walking with Jesus and they're walking and they're learning and they're beginning to see the scriptures. Verse number 45 uses the word that is the opposite of folly. All right, so the weak crippled churches in folly, here is the opposite of that. Then open he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. 
Here is a weak, powerless church. They do not understand the word of God. They do not know what it says. Therefore, because they don't know what it says, they justify what they do. Because it's, it doesn't make sense, but it makes sense to them. You ever been in a situation like that? You're trying to ask somebody what they did? They're like, why would you even think that? And they explain themselves, and they say, see, don't you know? Doesn't that make sense? No, it doesn't make sense to me. I don't understand why you did it. But to them, it makes sense, even though nobody else understands why. How does somebody get to that point where they take a look at the Bible or what they ought to be doing, and they say, this makes sense to me, but everybody else around them, their spiritual authorities, you know, Christian mentors, those that are mature in the faith, can look at them and say, uh, that doesn't make sense to me. Explain to me again why you do that. Show me the verses that you're using. How, how does that work? What ends up happening in a situation like that is they have to end up justifying what they do. Be very careful of when you get into a situation where you've got to begin justifying what you do. Because we see a number of instances where we could easily fall into a situation like that. James chapter 1, verse number 22. I have a number of verses. I don't know if we'll get to all of them, but let's take a look at some of them at least. Verse 22, but be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass. For he beholdeth himself and goeth his way and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. So the word for understanding the scriptures that we took a look at a moment ago is the same word for the word beholding. So here is a man, he sees himself in a mirror and he sees how he looks. If something's off, he should change it, right? Your hair is all wild, you should fix that. You got a blemish on your face, you should fix that. Or do something about it, wipe it off, you know, do all of these kinds of things. You got something in your teeth, you should take it out, right? If you see yourself the way that you are, you should do something about it. And what God is saying is, here's a group of people, they hear the word, but then they don't do anything about it. They don't change. They don't respond. They hear preaching on sin, but they don't repent. They hear we should go witness to our lost friends and neighbors and co-workers, and then they don't witness. We should be faithful in our finances and give an honor to the Lord, but they don't do it. But be ye doers of the word. So what is a weak, powerless religion? Oh, they hear and they hear and they hear and they hear and they hear, but their life is exactly the same. That's a weak, powerless religion. Another, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24, and let us consider... Here's that same word. Let us consider, let us understand, let us see and know one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. So here's another situation, all right? Why do we gather here together, all right? Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25 makes it pretty clear, right? Forsake not the assembling of yourselves together, all right? The rest of the verse, in verse number 24, gives us the reason. Verse 24, let us consider one another. You should come, and me and all of us, we should come to church with the attitude of, I'm coming, and I want to see somebody who I can help. Let us consider one another 
to provoke unto love and to good works. So the attitude of a weak, powerless religion is, I'm going to go to church and somebody should do something for me. The attitude of a Christian who follows the word of God is, I want to go to church so I can do something for somebody else. Right? There's a big difference that's there. One is a weak religion, one is a weak church, the other is a strong church. Another, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse number 12, And we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you, and are over you in the Lord, and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake, and to be at peace among yourselves. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, and be patient toward all men. See, here's another word, to know them which labor among you. You should know those that are doing the spiritual labor within your church, those that are preaching and teaching, those that are serving, those that are active. Specifically here, it talks about those that are in spiritual authority in your local church. Verse 12, and are over you in the Lord. A disregard for spiritual authority leads to a weak church. You've got to consider and to know them which labor among you. All right? It's not just your shepherd's job to take care of you. It's you as a sheep's job to know those that labor among you. Amen? Okay, maybe we need to cover this a little more. All right? First, uh, First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 12. And we beseech you, brethren. All right? He's speaking to the church at Thessalonica. The church at Thessalonica, we know about the church. They were a pretty good church. There were people that got saved. The letter was pretty strong in terms of encouraging. You guys are growing. You guys are doing well. But we gotta, I got to help you with this one area, church. Paul's writing to this church. We beseech you. All right? We're begging you. We're pleading with you. Do this one thing, brethren. All right? Church at Thessalonica, know them which labor among you. Get to know those that are doing the spiritual labor within your church and are over you in the Lord, even when they admonish you, even when they have to correct you, even when they have to pull you aside and say, hey, brother, hey, sister, uh, what's going on here? Yeah, notice that there's some things in your life. Know them that labor among you and esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake and be at peace among yourselves. It's very important that we each have a responsibility towards each other. Now, probably every one of you is pretty familiar with my responsibility towards you, okay? You're probably aware of that. You probably know what should be expected of me, right? Every Sunday morning, you should expect if I'm here and I'm preaching, Lord willing, you know, most, almost every Sunday, that I should come prepared to teach the Word of God, right? That's a proper expectation. You should expect that I should go among the people, meet the people, talk with them, welcome visitors, get to know them, get to know the church, get to know the church families, all of those things. You would expect that. You would expect me to go make a visit with, with you if you said, hey, I know I'm witnessing to my friend, I'm witnessing to my coworker, um, but you know, he's got some questions. I don't really know the answers. Can you come with me and help me? And sure, I'd love to go with you and be a help to you and just try to encourage you. Do Bible studies, all of that, all of those things. You're probably aware of all of those things, but you also have a responsibility towards me. Did you know that? All right, you do, all right? Every church member has a responsibility, and it's given here. 
And if we disregard our responsibilities, if I disregard my responsibility, and if you disregard your responsibility, we're going to be a weak church. We're going to be a weak religion, right? 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse number 3. Let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence, and likewise also the wife unto the husbands. All right? So what happens in a weak religion is the husband can justify the way that they treat their wives, and the wives can justify how they treat their husbands. All right? As husbands, we ought to love our wives even as Christ also loved the church. Amen? Amen? It is not conditional upon what your wife says or does. Right? Because Christ doesn't love us based on what we do for him. Right? You think God loves us because of what we do? All of the sin? He, he no, 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 no. He loves us despite what we do, and that's what we as husbands are called to do. We ought to love them. We ought to render due benevolence to them. They deserve it because that's what God did for us. God did it for us. We should give it to them. That's the example. That's the picture that God gives to us. Likewise, wives unto the husbands. Wives, as it says in Hebrews chapter 5, or uh, Ephesians chapter 5, submitting yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. That's a proper due benevolence. Now, your husband may not be as smart as you. Right? This is probably the case. <laughs> right? Your husband may not know as much as you. Your husband may even make wrong decisions. But here we see the biblical command, render unto the husband due benevolence. Let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence, and likewise the wife also unto the husband. Romans chapter 13, verse number 14, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. We as Christians ought to eliminate as much as possible any temptation opportunity that might come around, all right? If we can, we should avoid those situations. People wonder, well, why do we not go to bars? And why do we not go to these situations? Why do we not go to these places, all right? One of the reasons is, this is not the only reason, but one of the reasons is to stay away from temptation, all right? Right? We don't go to bars because we should not go into a situation where we know we're going to be tempted to do something. All right? That's unwise. That's not, that's not prudent. So we shouldn't do those kinds of things. But if you're part of a weak, powerless religion, guess what? You're going to begin to justify all of these things. Well, I got to go because, you know, my boss, you know, he told me that we got to do this thing for the work or whatever. You know, my coworkers, you know, I want to build a good relationship with my coworkers, you know. I want to get along with them. We got to, you know, and I don't want to have a bad relationship. That would make it very difficult. You know, I might even lose my job or whatever. You know, I, 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 I got to go and do all of these things. It's easy to justify, but as Christians, we ought to say, all right, what are we going to do? Are we going to follow God or are we not going to follow God? All right, Romans chapter 12, verse number 2. It's easy to justify our conformity to the world and be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that ye may prove what is good and acceptable and the perfect will of God. It's easy for us as Christians when we fall into this state to justify why we have to look like the world instead of the world looking at us and saying, whoa, there's a group of people that's different and there's something that's powerful in what they are doing, all right? What we do when we as Christians look like the world, and we, begin, we become just like the world, the world says, well, you guys are just like us. You guys don't have any power. You guys don't have any strength. There's no difference. There's no difference. So why would I, why would I give up 10% of my income if there's no difference? That's a good question. So we, we can't justify that. 
All right, Let, let's just take a look at uh, one, one more. At the very end, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 15. It's easy to justify the way that we treat brothers and sisters in Christ. Yet count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. When somebody is doing something that is wrong within the church, we ought to treat them as a brother, and yet say, if you're going to be sinning like that, you don't have a place within the church, all right? You're sinning, and you're causing others around you to fall. You're causing disunity within the church. You're causing a problem. You should repent of your sin. That, what you're doing is sin, and if you can't repent of that, I don't know what you want me to tell you, because we're supposed to be following God, and you're clearly going the opposite direction, what are we doing here? But don't admonish him as an enemy, but as a brother. Meaning this, no matter what a brother or sister does in Christ, you should still love them. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to bring them into your house. It doesn't mean that you have to even have fellowship together because if they're clearly sinning and doing something wrong, they don't have a place. And the church here at Thessalonica was told, you, you need to make sure that you guys continue to move in the right direction and make sure that you don't have these impurities, these people who are continuing to live in sin, justify their sin, and causing problems within the church, and that's being tolerated. That's not good. So we need to be careful of that. Which leads us ultimately to the end. Weak, powerless religions inevitably die. That's what happens. Right? That's what he's saying in verse number 9. Verse number 9 says, But they shall proceed no further. Weak, powerless religions die. They die because they are weak. And they are proven to be weak because of their fruit. What's the fruit? Verses number 2, 3, and 4. So all of these things come, and then you know, oh, we got some problems here. The fruit here is not what, what it should be. These are the fruits of a weak religion, we don't want to be a part of a weak religion. I want to be part of a strong religion, a strong church, one that follows God. So we've got to make some changes around here. We've got to repent of our sins and make sure that we are not like the church that has a form of godliness, but denies the power thereof. What are we supposed to do? We turn away from them. So we've got to be very careful. Be slow to accept things that are new and flashy. All right. I know there's a lot of trends in Christianity. Let me be very direct in my warning. Be very slow to accept new trends in Christianity because you don't know their fruit yet, and neither do I. Sometimes you don't see the fruit for 20 years. Sometimes you don't see the fruit for 40 years. Now, I know that sometimes a church like ours can be like, oh, get with the times. Well, hold on a second. I want to see the fruit because churches like ours have been doing things like this for thousands of years, all right? We don't suddenly need something new and drastic and all of these kinds of things. Let's see the fruit first, okay? I, I read about this quote. It was made, I think, a number of years ago. I don't know how old it is now. Very well-known pastor. A lot of people followed him, and he, after many years of doing this teaching and training and telling everybody, this is how you grow a church, he said, point blank, we made a mistake. And he said, we should have been telling our people to read their Bibles at home. 
And I was like, we've been preaching that for years. <laughs> That's what we've been believing. What do Christians need? They need to read their Bibles at home. They need to study on their own. He said, what we should have been doing is that we should have been telling them to practice their spiritual lives more aggressively on their own. They should take their lives proactively and say, you know what, this is what I think God wants me to do. I'm going to go do it. I don't need somebody to tell me. I don't need to join a class. I don't need to do any of these things. I can just go and witness to somebody. I can go study the Bible on my own. And he said, we made a big mistake. And I thought, good. All right, at least he acknowledged the mistake. At least he acknowledges, you know what, people should read their Bibles. People should do these things. And, all right, this though came like 30 years or whatever after he started getting big. After imagine doing something for 30 years and then 30 years later realizing that the guy who came up with your philosophy said, we made a mistake. We made a mistake. We should have been doing this. Oh, thanks, after 30 years. <laughs> All right. So we've got to make sure that we don't fall into this kind of a situation that we don't become like this. How do we make sure that we don't become like this? You've got to know the Bible, and you've got to trust God. That's really what it is. You've got to read the Bible, study the Bible, know the Bible, follow God in his word, and simply trust him. That's where the power is.